If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. You may recall Paul's letter to Timothy. He had, uh, Timothy had been sent to the church in Ephesus. There were some problems going on in the church and there were false, some false teachers that were there and part of Timothy's reason for being there, Paul's placing him, them there, was to, to be able to um, rebuke those who were teaching a different doctrine. And then what we see in, in chapter 3, Paul gives us the, the purpose for his letter to Timothy. He says this, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may ha- know how one ought to behave or to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so Paul is giving Timothy some instructions about how people ought to behave in the church, in the household of God, in the local church. And we're going to be looking at uh, one of the instructions that Paul gives, and it has to do with the qualifications for elders and the qualifications for deacons today. As I said, we are moving into a season where we're going to be nominating elders and nominating, asking you who are members to nominate elders and deacons, and today is going to be a, a sermon that is focused on those qualifications. This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1 in chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore... An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your word. It is a word that you have given us so that we may know how we are to conduct ourselves, not in our household, but in your household. I pray that today that you would grant us grace to be able to hear your word, to be able to focus on these high qualifications that you have set for those who would lead your church and those who would be leaders in serving your church. 
I pray that by your spirit, you would grant us grace, Lord, today. Grant me grace to, to preach it in the power of your spirit. Grant us grace as to hear it in the power of the spirit. And I pray that your church would be strengthened by this word today and that we as a people would be able to understand what you've called us to do as we seek to identify men who are called, you have called to the office of elder and the office of deacon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Reverend Megan Rower. Reverend Jim Baker and Deacon Doolittle. What do these three individuals have in common? I want to see if you can identify it. Reverend Megan Rower was ordained as a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in 2010. At that time, she identified as a lesbian, as a homosexual, and was married to another woman. Recently, you may have read that Megan Rower was elevated in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America to the uh, role of bishop where she will now oversee close to 200 congregations. She now identifies as transgender. Reverend Jim Baker, that may be a familiar name to some of you. Reverend Jim Baker, he was an infamous televangelist who now pastors Morningside Church in Blue Eye, Missouri. Baker has a past that has been filled with ministry failures, including marital infidelity, fraud, imprisonment. He and his ministry were recently sued for selling a fake cure for COVID-19, and they settled by paying restitution of $156,000. Deacon Doolittle, a deacon in his church, a very kind and gentle and a likable man, he serves his church with zeal. He's always the one, whenever a need arises in the church, he's the first to step up and serve. But when his wife and his kids go to bed at night, Deacon Doolittle is known to creep over to the lo local bar and to have one too many whiskey sours. What do these three individuals have in common? Well, the first thing you may have noticed is they all hold a office within the church, either elder or deacon. And the second thing is, is that they all fail to meet the qualifications for the office of elder or the office of deacon that Christ has laid out in His Word. And third, that if they continue to serve as elders or deacons in their various congregations, they will inevitably tear down the church, not build it up. John Thornton, he was a prominent businessman in the congregation of a very famous Anglican pastor by the name of Charles Simeon. And Thornton wrote Simeon a, a, a letter to exhort him about the seriousness of his role as a pastor. And this is what Thornton wrote to him. He said, I, I should recommend you having a watchful eye over yourself. For generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people. What was Thornton saying there? What he was saying was this, that, that the character and beliefs of ministers over time tend to become the character and beliefs of the congregation. Visit the congregation of Megan Rower, and I promise you, you will find a people with very similar character and very similar beliefs as her. You will find some who are enslaved to sexual sin like she is, and you'll find others who are enslaved to twisted thinking about sexuality and gender just like she is. 
as are ministers, so is the congregation. But it also works the other way, doesn't it? As are the ministers, so is the congregation. If a congregation has elders and deacons who are above reproach, men of integrity, men of humility, men who are faithful to the Bible, faithful to the Scriptures, over time you will find that the congregation is filled with that same character and those same beliefs. That is why it is so utterly important that we as a church were led by men who meet the qualifications for elders and deacons as Christ has laid down in His Word. Because the very beliefs and the very character of the church is at stake. As I mentioned earlier, we're moving into a season here at Grace Church where we're going to be asking those of you who are members here to nominate men who you believe are, uh, are meeting the qualifications of the elder, elders and deacons uh, that are laid out in the scriptures. And today what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time talking about the offices of elder and the office of deacon. We're going to spend some time uh, answering some questions as well as uh, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 to actually go through those qualifications. If there's a main point today, it's this, that you are, we are calling you to nominate men who meet the biblical qualifications for the office of elder and the office of deacon for the glory of God and for the good of the church. Now, I've decided this morning to break this sermon down into two parts. The first part is going to be a, kind of a question and answer uh, section. And then the second part, we'll, we'll actually look into 1 Timothy chapter 3 and unfold some of the qualifications that we see there. So first, let's start out with the questions and answers. First question, why are we asking you to identify men for the office of elder or the office of pastor? I'm using those two terms synonymously. Why are we asking you to nominate men for the office of elder when we already have a pastor? Jeff, now if you've not been here that long, it may surprise you that Jeff is actually one of four pastors here at Grace Church, uh, Sam Morris and Mike DeAndrea and myself being the other three. And some of you, like me, you may have come from church backgrounds where uh, that only had one pastor and then maybe several deacons, or, or maybe you come from a background that has uh, one lead pastor and then under them some associate pastors and then some deacons. Well, so you might think it's a little bit odd why we're, that's not the case here. Why are we asking you to nominate more men to be Pastors. Well, why do we have multiple pastors here at Grace Church? Well, it's because the Scriptures clearly assume that a church is going to be led by multiple pastors, multiple elders, a plurality of pastors, a plurality of elders. You may have heard that terminology before. And we can see this pattern in several places in the Scriptures. You may remember in Acts chapter 14, after Paul's first missionary journey, that on their way back, they start to visit churches that they had planted along the way. And so they had proclaimed the gospel in certain cities, in certain towns. People were converted. They were gathered into churches. And then on their way back, they started to organize those churches. And this is what it says. And when they had appointed elders, plural, that means more than one, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, singular, so we see right here multiple elders in a singular church, in one church. This pattern is, is in different places in the Scripture. You may remember what Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 1. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, as I directed you. 
Again, multiple elders in a single church, in one church. And that, so that's why we're asking you to identify more men who meet the qualifications for the office of elder or the office of pastor. It's because it's biblical. It's because God's word assumes that we will, that's what we are striving for as a church. And let me just say a bonus to that. A bonus is that the more pastors we have, the more elders, qualified elders we have, the more faithful that we can be in shepherding the flock. The more faithful we can be to the Great Commission. And perhaps, if the Lord wills, the quicker we can plant churches as we can send out pastors and deacons to lead and to serve the churches that we plant. Second important question, what's the difference between the duties of elders and the duties of deacons? Now, I want to be careful here because I know I could spend an entire sermon just on this, but I do want to lay out the fundamental difference between the duties of elders and deacons. And I think one place that you can see it quite clearly is in Acts chapter 6. You may remember what's going on in Acts chapter 6. In the early church, there a problem has had arisen. And that problem was that, that uh, certain widows were not receiving uh, the daily food distribution that was being handed out. And so this issue came to the attention of the apostles. And this is what it says, starting in verse 2 in chapter 6. And the twelve, speaking of the apostles, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, that's the church, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, by devoting our time and our energy to serve tables, we would be neglecting our primary duty as pastors, as ministers of the word. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so I think an article from uh, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, I think it says it quite concisely and nicely. It says this, that the biblical role of deacons is to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the church so that elders can concentrate on their primary calling, which can be summed up under the broad category of word ministry and prayer. To put it another way, the primary duty of deacons is to attend to the practical needs of the church so that the elders can attend to soul care and the spiritual needs of the church. You may be shocked to find this out, and I'm sure you will be when I mention it, but the chairs that you're sitting in today, they didn't organize themselves into rows themselves. <laughs> when we have tents outside, they don't magically pop up before 1045. If you're watching us on live stream today, the camera didn't automatically flip on by itself at 1045. The building that we're in, it doesn't maintain itself. Our finances, they don't take care of themselves. The work days at this church where lawns are mowed and trees are trimmed and houses are moved, they don't organize themselves. I know you know I'm being silly, but these are just some of the examples of the practical needs of the church that our deacons take charge of, that our deacons oversee. It doesn't mean that they do all the work, but what it does mean is that they take charge of those things to make sure that they get done so that the elders can focus on their primary duty, soul care, ministering the word of God, prayer. Let me just say, church, honor your deacons. Honor your deacons. Be incredibly thankful for them and let them know how much you appreciate them. I know I can speak for the other elders here that we are so incredibly thankful for our deacons. And deacons, I know you don't want me to say this because you don't want the public recognition, but I just wanted to say Andrew Wilberding, Andrew Myers, 
Jordan Fleming, Anthony Herman, we are so incredibly thankful for what you men do because what you do allows us as elders to accomplish what we accomplish, which is the soul care of the church. We lead the church by the word of God. We are able to focus on feeding the church with the word of God. We're able to focus on protecting the church from the deviations from the word of God and to care for the church in obedience to the word of God. Third important question. Can female, a female occupy the office of elder or the office of deacon? Boy, is that a loaded question. Corey, don't you know that that's a landmine in our culture today? I do. I do know it is, and which is why I want to handle it with both grace and truth. I want to handle it with the utmost care. And so first thing I want to tell you is I want to acknowledge a couple of things. The first thing I want to acknowledge is this, that women have been the recipients of much cruelty, much discrimination, and much oppression since the fall of Adam in the garden. We, we, we have seen it happen under the hand of wicked men. Many women, women have been devalued. They've been discriminated against. And there's been, uh, there've been, many have been uh, downgraded as if they were subhuman. One glaring example of this in our day is the life for women and uh, young girls under Taliban rule. You've probably seen that. Some stories coming out of Afghanistan. Terrible stuff. I want to be very clear this morning. Any true devaluing of, any true degrading of women or oppression of women, it is evil, it is wrong, and it is an abomination to God. So I want to acknowledge that first. But this is what I want to acknowledge second, that the world's attempts to try to right these wrongs inevitably end up distorting God's diverse design for both males and females. Ideologies like feminism, they seek to solve the problem of female oppression by either eradicating the roles that are reserved for men and women or flipping those roles upside down so that women end up doing what men, God designed men to do and men end up doing what God designed women to do. One example of this can be seen in marriage. To the feminists, the thought that a husband would be the head of his household, the thought that a husband would, would lead his wife is disgusting to them. That the woman, in their, in their thinking, the woman must not submit to such antiquated thinking. She must shake off all vestiges of male dominance. If anyone's going to lead in the marriage, it must be her. There's no room for a marriage to function the way that God has designed it to function. That is the loving and godly sacrifice and leadership of the husband for the good of his wife. And the wife's loving, godly, reverent submission to her husband out of love for Christ to a feminist, that would be giving in to female oppression. Now, you may be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the question whether f- females can occupy the office of elder or office of deacon? And I'll tell you, it has a lot to do with it. It has a lot to do with it because when this kind of thinking infiltrates the church, any result, role that has been reserved for males is automatically deemed off limits. It's automatically deemed s- sin to the, the world's moral standard. It's automatically seen as female oppression. And in an attempt to right this supposed wrong, which is not a wrong, a lot of interpretive gymnastics are done with God's Word in order to try to legitimize women occupying the roles of, of, of elder and occupying the role of deacon. I remember a young lady that I worked with several years ago. She began to explain to me why she believed that a woman could occupy the, the role of a pastor or occupy the role of a of, a, um, of an elder, and she began to describe in detail to me the context of what was going on in the church in Ephesus when Paul wrote these words, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority 
over a man. And her elaborate story about what was going on in the church of Ephesus couldn't be found in here. There was no historical context that she could pull from in order to come up with the story. What she was doing is she was just parroting what she had been taught. You may have heard, what I recalled, the interpretation boiled down to this as she concluded with her, with her argument, that, that this, this um, scripture, I do not permit a woman or to teach or exercise authority over a man, her interpretation boiled down to it was intended for that particular congregation in that particular time and not for the church today. Now, you may have heard others that point to this verse and say, oh, that was just cultural. Again, the idea that, that in, in, it, it only it was intended for churches in that particular culture. Let me just say, if that were the case, if this was meant to be cultural, we would expect Paul to offer a cultural reason, wouldn't we? We'd expect him to perhaps to offer something like this. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man because in this culture... Women who exercise authority over men are typically priestesses at the temple of the false god Artemis. And we don't want our women to be confused in Christianity with idol worship. See, that would be a cultural reason. But that's not the reason Paul gives, is it? His reason is not a cultural one. His reason is a creation one. Look what he says. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why, Paul? What's the reason for that? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. See what Paul's doing here? He's grounding his instruction that women should not be elders in the church by first pointing out to God's created order of males and females, that they each have a role, they each have a design. And second, that the tragedy that took place when that order was subverted in the fall. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might recall that that a firstborn son was given the authority over the household. Adam was like being created first, was like the firstborn son. By creating Adam first, the male, God had purposed men to be the head of their households. A man is given a responsibility over his household, a very important responsibility to lovingly lead and provide for and care for and protect his wife and children. Paul says in Ephesians that it's a beautiful picture of how Christ cares for his church. But that order was subverted in the fall. When Eve acted as the head of the household and Adam evaded his God-given responsibility to lead. And the results, as we know, were tragic. They both ate of the forbidden fruit and plunged all of humanity into sin and misery that we are even experienced today. See, what Paul's saying here is that, that God's created order, it not only applies to the households of families, it also applies to the household of God, the church. Just as men are charged with leading and providing for and caring for and protecting their wives and their families, so men are charged with leading and providing for and caring for and protecting the family of God, the bride of Christ, the church. And if this order is subverted, it will not be backed by the blessing of God. See, there's a reason that Jesus appointed 12 men to be His apostles and not 12 women. There's a reason that the apostles ordained twelve or seven men to be deacons in Acts chapter 6 and not seven women. 
It has nothing to do with discrimination. It has nothing to do with female oppression. And it has everything to do with God's design. It's because He has purposed that men lead His church. And as we see, we'll see today as we go through the qualification for elders and deacons, these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3 leave no room for us to even remotely think otherwise. See, the world is full of churches and leadership structures in churches that look very different than what we've already seen this morning. Why is that? Well, maybe it's ignorance. Maybe they just don't know. Or maybe it's tradition. Maybe they've just always done it that way. But my suspicion for a lot of churches is because the ideas of the world have crept into the church. But whatever that's being driven by, it's not being driven by the Word of God. Let that serve as a warning to us. Let that serve as a warning to us. Let God be God over His household. Let us not try to take His place. And He has made it quite clear how His household is to be run by qualified elders and qualified deacons. And to those qualifications we shall now turn. What kind of men should you be looking for as we ask you to nominate individuals for the office of elder and deacon? First, let's take a look at the qualifications for elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let me go ahead and say this morning that we are not going to look at any of these with a fine-tooth comb. We're going to look at them very briefly, but I want to encourage you to stay awake. Stay awake. Stay alert. This is important. These are the qualifications that you guys and, and, and I need to look for as we seek to nominate men. Look at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. What's an overseer? Let's ask that question. Well, an overseer is an elder. And an overseer is a pastor. And an overseer is a shepherd. Shepherd, pastor, same word. An overseer is also a bishop. It's all referring to the same office. And we can see the three of these words come, come together clearly referring to the same office in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look what it says. So I exhort the elders, there's one of the words, among you, so Peter talking to elders, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, here it is, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, there's the overseer, overseer exercises oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So they all refer to the same office, but they have different meanings in the words. So an overseer refers to, emphasizes the function of the office. This is a man who exercises oversight and supervision of the congregation. An elder refers and emphasizes the character of the person. He has to be really, 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 really old. No. He can be really old. But spiritual maturity, it's what's, it's what's being taught here. Next, shepherd or pastor. This emphasizes the attitude. He's a man who cares, like a shepherd cares for the sheep. He's a man that cares for Christ's sheep in his church. Verse 1 also clues us into two important truths for those of you who think that you might want to be an elder or be a pastor. Here's what it says. First thing I want you to see is that, that in verse 1 is that it's not wrong to desire or to pursue being an elder. Look what Paul says. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. If you have the desire to be an overseer, a desire to be an elder, don't suppress that. 
You need to know that it's not more humble for you to not desire it. In fact, that's a part of God's calling, desire is. The other elders can tell you about my personal struggles with my calling. They can tell you that there are times when I struggle with it. There are times when my my desires vacillate. But one thing is always real with me, and that is that that desire never goes away. It's something that I can't shake. You see, that's a part of God's calling. The desire has to be there and continually to be there. Second, verse 1 also shows us something very important about the elder. Being an elder is work. It is a noble task, but make no mistake, it is a task. It is work. It is labor. It's not all baptisms and baby dedications. If you're preaching or teaching, I promise you, it's labor in the Word. It's leadership meetings. It's ministering in homes. If you're called, these things are going to be a joy and, and, and not be a drudgery. But you need to know something very important. It is work. It is labor. As we move into verses 2 through, two through 7, I want, I want you to notice something very important in these verses. And you'll see the same thing with deacons. I want you to notice how important character of the man is. Verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. He must be. This is a present tense. This is what he is now. I promise you that if the qualification for elders was that they always had to be above reproach, you would not have any elders in this church or deacons. But that's not. Above reproach means that a a man is, is, uh, other translations say it's blameless. And what it is is a general category that's going to encompass the rest of the characteristic that Paul's going to mention and please know that what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that the man is perfect. Again, this would be an elderless church if, it was, if that was the requirement. But what it does mean is that there is a consistency in the man's walk, a pattern in his walk. He, can, he can't be truly accused of any ongoing habitual sins or failing to meet the character traits, qualifications laid down in this section. Still in verse 2, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. Now, this doesn't mean that an elder must be married, but what it does mean is if he is married, he is deeply devoted to his wife. He is sexually pure. He doesn't look at pornography. He has eyes for his wife and his wife alone. Again, remember, this is what he is now, not necessarily what he was at one time. This means that it doesn't necessarily disqualify a man who's been divorced in the past or been unfaithful to his wife in the past. This is what he is now, now just as long as he has a track record of devotion to his wife or devotion and singleness to sexual purity. I just can't express to you how important this qualification is. This qualification has been subverted by many a church. My, many a church has been devastated by pastors who were not a one-woman man. I can think of one right here in Swansboro that went from about 125 to 150 people in a matter of months to nothing. And so being a one-woman man, the husband of one wife, is so incredibly important. Sober-minded is the next one, or temperate. This refers to someone who's restrained. It refers to someone who has a halter on himself. He restrains himself from indulging in sin, and he's not given to excess. He leads a balanced life, a moderate life, self-controlled, kind of goes hand in hand. It flows out of being temperate. He thinks before he speaks. He thinks before he acts. He's under the control, uh, under his control of himself. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Thoughtful, and he's decent, and he's wise. You want a recipe for how to destroy a church? 
Put a man in leadership who's not self-controlled. It will create one of the most toxic environments that you can ever imagine as he is driven by his flesh. And we can see that playing out so clearly in so many men that fall today in, in church leadership. Let me just state the obvious. We don't want a clone of the famous basketball coach Bobby Knight in a leadership position in this church. If you don't know who that is, he's known for blowing his gasket and chunking chairs on the floor. We want to keep the chairs right where they're at. Respectable. He lives in a way that's befitting as a follower of Christ. Honorable, modest, orderly, well-behaved, virtuous. He has dignity in the respect of his peers. He's a man who's hospitable. He's open to strangers. He's open and loving to others. He loves to have strangers in, in his household, and he's willing to have them in his household, not just for dinner. He's willing to sacrifice himself. We talked about self-denial this morning in our, in our, in our adult class this morning. He's willing to deny himself like the good Samaritan in order to care for those in need, like that man on the road that the good Samaritan scooped up and cared for. That's hospitable. Next, very important, able to teach. This has to do with gifting. This is the main qualification that differs between deacons and elders. An elder must be able to teach. That is not a qualification of, for deacons. An elder must be skilled in teaching, and not just teaching in general. An elder must be skilled in teaching something specific, and that is the Word of God. Titus, uh, Paul adds this in, in the qualifications in Titus for an elder, that he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he must be doctrinally sound in his teaching. Notice it does not say that he must be able to preach. Now that may be a little bit different. That may be new to some of you who come from church backgrounds where, that, where pastors preach, and if they can't preach, then there must be something else than, other than pastors. If we look a little further in Paul's letter in Timothy, we can see that there is actually a distinction within the office of pastor or the office of elder. And that distinction makes a, a divide between there are elders whose primary responsibility is to govern and rule the church with the others who are, whose primary responsibility is, yes, to govern and rule the church, but also to labor in preaching and teaching. Here's what 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor governing, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So all elders have the responsibility to govern, but only some labor in pre preaching and teaching. Why is that important? Well, it's important because as we're asking you to identify men who meet the qualifications for elders, you should not discount someone just because you've never seen them up here on a Sunday preaching. You shouldn't do that. You should make sure that they do have the ability to teach God's Word. Next, not a drunkard. He's not controlled and dominated by wine or strong drink. Or I would even add drugs. It doesn't mean that he can't drink alcohol, but what it does mean is that it doesn't, he doesn't drink alcohol in excess. He doesn't drink it in excess. Next, he's not violent. New American Standard puts it this way. He's not pugnacious, literally a giver of blows. He isn't quick to respond with violence, and he isn't abusive. He hasn't given anyone a black eye in the past few years. He hasn't punched a hole in his wall at his house in the past few years. He isn't known to blow his gasket when he doesn't get his way. Gentle, the opposite. This is the opposite of violent. 
He holds his strength under control. He easily pardons human failure. He's forbearing with those who do him wrong. He's not quarrelsome. He is not known to love arguing. He's not known for loving to pick fights. He is not quick to enter into a dispute of words, but he is a peacemaker, seeking peace as much as he can, striving for it. He's not a lover of money. He's not the guy who always wants to talk about money or the pursuit of wealth. This disqualifies every prosperity gospel preacher out there, by the way. He's not greedy. Money's not his motivation. God's glory is. He's content with God and His provision, whether that means he has a whole lot or whether that means he has very little. He's a content man with where God has him. He must manage or rule his own household well. And one evidence that a man is able to manage and rule his own household well is that he has children. If he does have children, they are respectfully submissive. There's grace for two-year-olds, though. We know that. And three-year-olds. Yes, those two. Why is that important? Paul says this in verse 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? See, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If he can't manage his own household with a very few people, how in the world could he ever manage God's household with more people? Next, he's not a new convert. He must not be a new believer. He must be mature in the faith. Why? Paul tells us. Because he may become puffed up with conceit. That's pride. And he may fall into the condemnation of the devil. You see, pride is a real temptation whenever you take on the role as a pastor. It is a real temptation, and especially a real temptation if it is someone who is not spiritually mature, someone who is a brand new believer. It's like placing a hormonal 14-year-old in charge of your household. No offense, hormonal 14-year-olds. I was once one of you. I promise. And I shouldn't have been running my household either. I wasn't. Praise God. See, they tend to think that they know more about things than maybe they actually do. They think that decisions that they make are better than maybe the people who have lived life longer and been more mature. See, that's the same with with a new convert. A new convert is prone to think that they have more spiritual insight than they actually do. They're prone to think they have more knowledge of God's will in the Bible than they actually do. And such pride is a recipe for disaster in the church. Many of you probably know this verse, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what happened to Satan. Pride drove him to think he knew better than God and he fell and he dragged thousands of angels with him. We don't want that to be replayed in the church as a leader falls because of pride and drags so many down with him. Lastly, he must be well thought of by outsiders. He must be one who unbelievers respect, even if they don't agree with him. They see how he lives his life. He's a a man of discipline, a man of integrity, a man that they would actually trust. That's what Paul adds in Titus. He must be upright and holy and disciplined. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare or a trap of the devil. In other words, so so he doesn't make himself bring reproach upon the church. You see, there are not many things that are, that, are, that are worse than an elder in Christ's church living like a pagan, living like a wretch before a watching world. Hypocrisy is so easy to sniff out, and I promise you, it stinks. And it stinks even to unbelievers. And so these are the qualifications for elders in Christ's church. These are the qualifications that you need to be thinking about and praying about as you consider what men has God called in this church to be 
an elder in Grace Church. How about deacons? Well, as we begin in verse 8, I want you to see again that character is king. Christ has established a high bar for servants in His household. Not perfect men, but exemplary men. Men can, that can be held up as examples for the flock to follow. This will be a, a lot quicker than the elders since a lot of these qualifications are the same as elders. I won't mention those. I won't detail those as much as I did when we were talking about elders, but I will point them out. Deacons. What does that mean? Diakonos. It means one who renders service. It means a servant. And I think the name adequately describes the function of the office. Deacons serve the church. They serve by taking care of works of necessity like setup and finances. And they serve by taking, taking part in works of mercy like organizing care for widows so that the elders are freed up to perform their ministry. Look at the qualifications. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. Dignified, that's worthy of respect. He's esteemed because of his character. He's godly. He understands the seriousness of spiritual issues. He's not flippant about serious matters. Next, he's not double-tongued. He must not be one who says one thing and yet means another. He must not be one who says something to one person and something different to another person. He must be, not be known to gossip or be quick to discuss private matters. You know what James says about the tongue, don't you? It's like a small fire and it can set a whole forest ablaze. The tongue can burn down a church really quickly. That's why it's so important that a man in a position of service and leadership and service has control of his tongue. Next, not addicted to much wine. Again, same as elder. That means he can, doesn't mean he can't drink alcohol. It means he doesn't drink it in excess. Next, not be greedy for dishonest gain. Again, the same as the elder who's not to be a lover of money. Let me ask the question, why is that so important for a deacon not to be a lover of money? Yeah, because a deacon, he may have contact with finances in the church. And it's important for him to be free from the love of money so that he doesn't end up like Judas, who would dip his money in Jesus's and his disciples' money bag and take out for himself. Many a church has experienced so much pain and so much heartache because a person was in a position like that who was a lover of money and stole. Next, he must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He must have a good grasp of the gospel like elders, and his behavior should be consistent with his profession. What does it mean to hold it with a clear conscience? It means to have no reservations about anything involved in what especially the fundamentals of the faith are, and especially the gospel. He must have no reservation about the bad news, that he and all humanity are not deserving of blessing from God, not deserving of heaven, but are deserving of hell. Why? Because we've all broken God's law. We've all broken the Ten Commandments. When we look at the Ten Commandments, they don't show us to be innocent. They don't show us to be righteous, do they? When we look at the Ten Commandments, they show us to be liars and thieves and adulterers at heart and idolaters, and the list goes on and on. And the, the deacon knows that the wages of sin is not eternal life. The wages of sin is death, physical and spiritual death in hell forever. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that we ourselves can do to save ourselves from that. There's nothing we can do to erase the sin debt. There's nothing that we can do to... Somehow start cleaning up our lives now and somehow be found righteous before God. Why? Because we've already blown that. He must have no reservation about the bad news, but he also must have no reservation about the good news. 
that the eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, totally God and totally man, in order to rescue His people from their miserable state. We are desperate for a perfect record of righteousness that we ourselves, we can't attain because we've already blown that. But Jesus came in order to live under His law, in order to live a perfect sinless life in obedience to the Ten Commandments and all the commandments of God. Why? To earn a perfect righteous record for His people. We are desperate for someone to come and pay our sin debt, which is so enormous that we can't even fathom it. So enormous that Jesus himself said that as he faced what was about to come down on him, he said, I'm about to, I'm sorrowful even to the point of death. I'm almost dying just thinking about and seeing what I'm about to endure on the cross, the wrath of God for my people. And when he was on the cross, Jesus paid that debt for his people, poured out on him instead of us. Last, we are also desperate for death to be taken off of us and eternal life to be given to us. And that has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, through his life. Yes, through his death. And yes, through his resurrection when he rose from the dead. An undeniable sign that all of it's true. Lastly, the deacon must have no reservation about the response that God requires in order to receive the forgiveness of sins, in order to receive eternal life. And that is repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. That means God has come in and He has performed, yes, a a heart change, a heart surgery in the heart where all of a sudden sin that you were once in love with, all of a sudden now you despise and you hate and you, you loathe yourself because of your sin and you look and you see God's offer of mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ and out of hatred for your sin, you turn from it and turn to Christ and turn to God with an endeavor to follow Him for the rest of the days of your life. That's repentance. And then you trust in the only hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. You stop trusting in your own life of goodness. You stop trusting in your own religious observance and you start trusting in Jesus, the only one who can give you righteousness you don't have, the only one who can erase your sin debt because he paid for it, and the only one who can give you life after death because he rose from the dead. Let me just ask you, if you're listening here this morning and you've not repented and trusted in Christ, let me just ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? See, God has been so gracious to you to keep you alive up until this point today. I promise you, if you're anything like me, I should have been dead a long time ago. But God saved me from so many different places, not because I was right with Him, because He was kind and patient that I might repent and turn to Him. Today, He has brought you here and He's offering you salvation. He's offering you the forgiveness of sins. He's offering you a perfect righteousness that you don't have. He's offering you peace with Him. He's offering you reconciliation. He's offering you adoption. He's offering you heaven instead of the hell that you deserve. Let me just say to you, do not neglect such a great salvation. Repent and trust in Him and Him alone today. You don't know how much time you've got left. You could leave here today and that could be it. The number of your days could be it, but you have the opportunity now. I encourage you. See, a deacon must believe and hold this gospel with a clear conscience, without reservation. Next, he must be blameless. Paul says in verse 10, And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. 
This word blameless, again, it functions very similarly to above reproach for the elders. It doesn't mean that a deacon is perfect. We would have no deacons if that was the case. But what it does mean is no one can truly accuse him of failing to meet the qualifications that are outlined in these verses. You see, there's no question that this deacon is not addicted to wine. There's no question that the deacon is not greedy for dishonest gain and so on. But look what Paul says. He says, let them also be tested first. In other words, there has to be enough time that goes by for the church to observe the life of a man who would be called into the office of deacon. If you've been coming to Grace Church for a month or two months, please don't be offended that you won't be chosen to be a deacon this round. Don't be offended by that. Instead, we want to encourage you to do is dive in. Start serving as if you were a deacon. Let the church see proof of your character and proof that God has indeed called you to, a, as, as, to the office of deacon, if that is the case. Next, look at what is it Paul says. There's qualification also for the deacon's wife. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And by the way, this would apply to elders' wives as well. In a nutshell, the deacon's wife must also be of similar character as the deacon. She must be worthy of respect by the way she lives a godly life. She must not be a gossip. She must not be quick to talk about other people's business. She must be temperate, clear-headed, faithful to the Lord in all things. Next, the deacon must be the husband of one wife. Again, a one-woman man, same as an elder. Next, managing his own children and his household well. Again, the same as elders. I won't repeat those. And then Paul ends this section on deacons. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, what a reward that is for being a deacon. See, these are the qualifications that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, through the pen of Paul, had, has given to us for the office of elder and the office of deacon. And so what we want to ask you to do, church, those of you who are members, is we want to ask you to nominate men and identify men in this congregation that meet these qualifications. And a couple of, a few tips for you as we, as we think about this. First, as I mentioned earlier, over on the table by the coffee station, we have the nomination forms for both elders and deacons as well as handouts that go through these qualifications that we went through today. And what we want to encourage you to do is go grab those and we want you to take them home and we want you to start praying about reading through the qualifications, asking God to reveal to you the men that are in this church that he has called either to the office of elder or the office of deacon. So we want to encourage you to do that. Second, just to give you some help in this, I would encourage you and the elders would encourage you also to look around this church and identify the men who are already serving. Identify the men who are already digging in. We're already able to see their character and see their service Perhaps if, if someone is, if you see them teaching and you know that they teach God's word well, perhaps they could be an elder. If someone is serving an awful lot, you see them serving just about every time we have a servant's opportunity, perhaps they could be a deacon. And third and lastly, we're going to be receiving nominations over the, last, uh, over the next three weeks. The next three weeks. And so make sure that you have your nominations in by that time. And so after... All the nominations are in. Uh, we will look at those and any men that have been nominated, as if they have received 25% of the nominations or more, we will go to those men and we will ask them, okay, you've been nominated to be an, an elder or you've been nominated a deacon. Is this something that, that you feel like you want to move forward with that the Lord has called you to? If they say yes, at that point, the elders will meet with them and their families and will begin to 
to interview them to make sure, indeed, that they meet the qualifications, at least as best as we can tell, as well as that they uh, are on board with where we stand doctrinally as a church. And so that is what we will do. And so we encourage you, please do have those nominations uh, in uh, within the next three weeks would be fantastic. Well, as we conclude this morning, what if John Thornton was right? What if, generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people? As are the elders, so is the church. As are the deacons, so are the church. If that is true, and I think that it is, and we nominate men who meet the qualifications that Christ has laid out for us in His Word today, what kind of church can, can we expect to grow into? Well, we, can grow, we will grow to be a people who know the Word of God and who love the Word of God and who are doctrinally sound. We'll grow to be a people who are above reproach, that are worthy of respect, people of integrity, blameless in character. We'll grow to be a people who are temperate and gentle and self-controlled. We will grow to be a people who are able to control our tongues and speak truth and not gossip. In short, we will grow to be a people who look more and more and more like the master of this household. We will look more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me urge you, church. Nominate men who meet the biblical qualifications for the office of elder and the office of deacon for the glory of God and for the good of Grace Church. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. These are your, this is your household. These are your qualifications that you have set forth in order that your church might be led by qualified elders and qualified deacons. Lord, I pray for us as we go into this season of nominating men who we think meet these qualifications. Lord, that you would, you would allow these men to rise to the top, that it would come to the minds of your people as we, as we write down their names on their, our nomination forms. Pray that the men whom you are already calling to that, Lord, you would begin and continue to place the desire in their hearts for that so that when they are, we come to them, they will be willing and ready to move down that path of, of being interviewed and, Lord willing, your will, be able to come an elder or a deacon. I pray, Lord, that if there be any here today that, that is lost, any here today that is, is, is not converted, that, Lord, by your grace, that you would bring salvation to them today. Grant them repentance. Grant them faith. Grant them a righteousness, Lord, that you have offered in, in, in your Son and that is a perfect righteousness that they need. We ask for your grace, Lord, and we trust you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.